You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to the poet Maggie Smith. Maggie is the award-winning author of Good Bones, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison, Lamp of the Body, and the national bestsellers Goldenrod and Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity, and Change. A 2011 recipient of a Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, Smith has also received several individual excellence awards from the Ohio Arts Council, two Academy of American Poets Prizes, a Pushcart Prize, and fellowships from the Sustainable Arts Foundation and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. She has been widely published, appearing in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Paris Review, the Nation, the Best American Poetry, and more. Her memoir, You Can Make This Place Beautiful, is out now and available in your local bookshop. When we spoke, Maggie and I discussed what might have happened if she'd left her native Ohio to go to graduate school in Tucson, and thus also left the man who ultimately became her husband. Along the way, we discussed the impossible questions one gets asked in the aftermath of divorce, how writing your trauma can help you through, though not necessarily in the way you might think, and ways to find yourself when you're far from home. Maggie also taught me a very important lesson about banned t-shirts. Hi, Maggie. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with me on My Unlived Life. Oh, no, thanks for having me. Well, it's a total pleasure. And I'm, do you know what I'm having? I'm having a bit of that moment. You know, like when you see somebody famous, like from TV in the street, like just randomly, like they're in your neighborhood for some reason. And you sort uh, of. No, I live in Ohio. <laughs> that doesn't happen here. <laughs> yes. Okay. Good point. Good point. I'm in London. Sometimes we see famous people. What happens to me, at least, is you sort of involuntarily wave because you kind of think you know them because they sort of be, <laughs> do you know what I mean? They're sort of in your space a lot. And so you and then you kind of remember, it's like your brain kind of goes, oh, no, no, I don't. I don't know that person. But <laughs> my my point is <laughs> that I'm, I'm having a bit of that experience with you because I, like I'm sure lots of other people, was... Uh, in the early stages of my divorce, um, sort of pre-pandemic and just on the floor. And at some point, uh, your keep moving tweets about carrying on through grief and loss and heartache and awful found their way to me. I found them. They found me. And they were, I mean, it's so cliche, but they were a lifeline. They were really, truly helpful because I think as you well know, it's sort of, it is a really, really good example of something that you genuinely don't know how bad it is until you're in it. And to have somebody articulating how bad it was, you know, it felt like having somebody kind of pick you up and kind of go, okay, we're going to do this together. Um, and they were amazing. I'm sure I'm not the only person to say that. 
No, and I and it never gets old. I love that. I mean, that that sort of project for me was so personal and really it was about like picking myself up off the floor <laughs> personally like it was it was like literal self-help because I really needed to write myself into a better place every day. And so whenever I hear that like somehow like a little message in a bottle some little thing that I wrote in the morning to help get myself out of bed, making coffee, packing kids' lunches, et cetera, et cetera, found its way to someone else who was maybe going through something eerily similar or something completely different, but equally shitty. It's like the strangest, most wonderful sense of community. And especially when I find out about it, like years later, like we were all in community and, and like some of us just didn't know it. Like, you know, we were all having kind of a conversation and nodding along, even though we weren't all in the same room doing it. I love that description of it. And what an amazing thing to discover later, later down the line. And then and then you wrote this utterly, again, both heartbreaking and hopeful, and I think equal measure memoir. You can make this place beautiful. And um it's just the most, it's such a fascinating, formally, it's really fascinating, which is not surprising from you, but also just the, the encapsulation of that moving through divorce, parenting through divorce, um, what community is in that, in that context. And all of that is really, um, it's masterful. And again, it feels so helpful. Can you just say a little bit about the book, please? Yeah, it's funny. I don't have like, um, I feel like I should have some sort of elevator pitch for this book. Like I should be able to sum it up in a couple of sentences. Like this is a book about, you know, and then a blank with a period at the end, like on some worksheet you would get in school. And yet like the blank would need to be very, very, very long <laughs> for me to be able to describe it. And in some ways that makes sense because it's not like it coming up with a concise description for this book is hard because I don't really have a neat, concise summary of like all of the living that went into the experiences I write about in this book. But maybe the short answer is that this is the book I wrote trying to sort of figure out what happened in my adult life, like all of the sort of like small snaking paths that led me to be a divorced, self-employed, single parent poet, teacher, homebody in my early to mid 40s, rewinding the film and then realizing, oh, I need to go back a little further or I need to, no, I need to go back a little further. No, I need to look at this other bit and, and really just trying to figure out the impossible question, which is what happened? Like, how did I get from point A to point G or where whatever point I'm at right now? I'm not sure what letter I'm at at 46. It's probably further on than G. Who am I kidding? I'm, I might be at like R at this point. <laughs> no, you not know? R. Sure. 46 what? can't be R. 46, well, 46 cannot be R unless we're going to get into like double A, double B. It was a sort of, I think, like lovingly naive, well-intentioned attempt to write my way to clarity about my life. As if, if I wrote enough words and enough pages and told enough stories and looked at enough metaphors and processed it hard enough and deeply enough that somehow it would all make sense and I could, quote, solve it, 
And then I could set it down because the goal was to be able to set it down. I couldn't not write this book because it was going to be staring at me no matter what else I tried to write. And I really thought when I started that I could solve it and set it down and understand it and have all the answers and sort of be at peace and be, you know, for lack of a better word, healed from the experience through the act of decoding of it. And, you know, spoiler alert, (laughs) I didn't solve my life. I don't have the act, you know, I don't have access to all of the all of the clues and all of the pieces, and I never will. So it's not ever going to completely click into place for me, which I think I probably knew deep down going into this, but Lord, I tried. But the process of writing it was so surprisingly healing and like revelatory in itself that it was absolutely worth doing. Well, and that, and also totally infuriating right because that's what everybody it's like it's like what everybody you know when you're writing and everyone kind of goes don't be worried about the outcome it's the you know she the process is a thing and you're kind of like yeah but no like I want an outcome you know it's like yeah yeah, isn't that delightful but I'd like an outcome please and that that need to that need to solve is so fascinating isn't it yeah yeah I mean it's I mean really what I wanted the outcome to be was I wanted to feel better right I did actually feel better when I finished writing this book, but not in the ways that I necessarily expected or for the reasons that I expected. Like that that's interesting. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean I think I think I expected the solving to be the thing that made me feel better. And in fact, the like facing it and going there and sort of like surviving that was what helped me feel better. And, and, you know, writing is, is a process of discovery. Like I never know, even with a little poem, even with something that's maybe 10 or 12 or 14 lines long, I never know where I'm going to end up when I enter it. Like I have no idea what I'm writing about when I'm writing. I just sort of, I get a scrap of language. I get an image, I get a phrase and I just sort of hope that it gains momentum, you know, like a snowball rolling down a hill and if it if it keeps rolling i just follow it and so this book was not unlike that i just sort of kept following it following it following it like letting it lead me where it wanted to go and discovering connections between pieces of my life discovering connections between events um seeing echoes or sort of like i think of them as like idea rhymes Ooh. from earlier parts of my life to later parts of my life or parts of my marriage and parts of my work or parts of my work and parts of my parenting. I mean, the one thing that, that maybe writing a poem at a time doesn't encourage is a lot of thinking about the way that things are touching and related. Like if every piece of writing is small and discreet and separate from everything else, it doesn't encourage you to kind of like look at it holistically or step back and see how things are speaking to each other always. And so approaching a project this size was daunting, but it also was such like a rich opportunity for me personally to see everything in the same frame 
you know? It feels like the most perfect melding, actually, in a way of those two disciplines, because these pages that you have are so fragmented, you know, so, you know, the the page with a paragraph, the page with a line, the page that's a page, all of those sorts of things. I mean, they feel like prose poems. That's what, the, oh, you know. Oh, good. I love that. And then they're connected. So it's just, but it does feel a bit like, I think at some point you say, you know, you could shuffle the deck of all of this. And that's what it feels like. It feels like you could, you could pull one out at random. You could look at it. You could have an experience just based on that piece of writing. But then to feel it as a whole is, it's just, I mean, it's, you know, that's. Oh, cool. I love that. I mean, and that's a lot of how I actually put together a collection of poetry, right? Like each poem stands on its own. It can live in a magazine or a journal. You can read it by itself. It doesn't need its brothers and sisters necessarily to make sense. Like it has its own, you know, cohesion, like it has its own, um, it's its own beast, right? But then you put it in the menagerie and something different happens when it gets to live alongside all these other creatures and and there's like relationship involved. And so the same with this book, like I had to write it as myself, which means I had to write it as a poet. I don't know how to prose any other way than as a poet, um, which is why I use prose as a verb. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> was amazing. Because that's an annoying thing that poets do, which is trying to change the parts of speech of things. I enjoyed it. Like I knew it would be vignettes. I knew the pieces would be varied in shape and size. I knew it would be metaphor heavy. I knew there would be motifs and threads that would move through it because that's how I write. And I couldn't try to do a different kind of book. I knew I had to enter this project as myself. And I had no idea what that would look like. And as it turns out, it looks like this book. <laughs> well, it's it's stunning. And I have a feeling I'm just going to be checking back in with it you know, from, from time to time that just, it's mm. really, really beautiful. At one point you say, you know, people ask me, you know, cause you're, you're going through the divorce and they say, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't undo it. Would you, you wouldn't undo the marriage because uh, then you wouldn't have your children bless them, you know, well-intentioned when they're trying to make you feel better. They say, yes, it's awful. But um, you know, if, if you hadn't married this guy, you wouldn't have your children. And your response to it is really interesting in particular in light of the path that we're going to take today, because it may well take you away from your children. Um, mm -hmm. Can you just say what that, what your response is to the yes, but you wouldn't have your children? Because I love, I found it so refreshing. So the, the, the question is like, right, someone says, yes, it's a yes, but, right? And it's not really a question. What it is, is like, they want reassurance that you would still choose the path that you're on because otherwise, what would you be saying that you wish you wouldn't have your kids either? Mm. So people say, I know this was terrible and I'm sorry it happened, but I'm, aren't you still glad that it, you wouldn't do it any other way because look at these two beautiful children that you have. And my answer actually shifts from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. But at the beginning of the book, my answer to that question is no, I would totally undo everything to avoid this suffering. Yeah. And I would undo everything to avoid the suffering for myself. And I would undo all of this to avoid the suffering for my children. Um, because this isn't quite what I expected or wanted for these two human beings either. And so when I say that, I sort of like, there's a look of horror <laughs> on the other person's face because they know how much I love my children. And so I guess the, the first instinct is like, wow, you must be suffering a lot to be willing to trade away the two people you love most in the world to avoid this pain. Um, or it's just a look of horror. Like, did she really just say that? And mm. And my response is really... 
if I had taken a different path, like in a choose your own adventure book, and I hadn't met my now ex-husband and I didn't have my children, I would be living a completely different life right now. I would be probably someone else's wife or ex-wife. I would um, have, I'm sure I would have children. They would not be the same two people I have because I don't quite think that's the way it works. No, um, so. The recipe seems pretty specific to the, to the people who make them. <laughs> um, and so given that recipe, I would have different children. Maybe I'd only have one. Maybe I'd have five. Who really knows? Um, but I know one thing is that the person I would be wouldn't know that the two children I have exist. There would be no missing. There would be no grief about it. And so considering the consciousness that would go into that, it's not a hard thing to say. Later in the book, I change my mind and say, no, actually, I take that back. I process this a little bit more. I said that out of a place of deep, deep, deep suffering. My answer now is I would not jettison the marriage because I want to keep the children. But if I had my way, this would be a Greek myth mm -hmm. in which just two children, these two specific perfect children spring from me whole. Um, and, uh, and, and that, and it's just the three of us and I don't have to think about that anymore. <laughs> so that's that's the honest answer that probably no one wants to hear but it's the truth no I think it's great I really really do it's it's you so many cliches come your way when you're in the middle of something like this and to actually be able to respond with a full answer and an answer that changes over time because the whole thing changes over time is really important I think we should go down your path and okay. see what happens and see if these two children spring from you like a Greek myth or if something else. <laughs> uh, gosh, I hope they find a way. They they are pretty, they're pretty persistent people. Right. If anyone can do it, I, I trust them. Well, let's see. Let's find out what happens. Can you give a little context for the sort of period of time that we're talking about and who you are and what's going on? Yeah. So if I, if I were to rewind far enough to really change this trajectory from happening, it would have, I would have to rewind back to um, graduation from college and deciding to go get my MFA in poetry. And at that time I'd applied all over the country and it came down to um, living here where I live now in Columbus, Ohio, in my hometown moving to Seattle, Washington, or moving to Tucson, Arizona, despite my desire to go have a grand adventure someplace very far from home. Um, I ended up making the sort of classic responsible firstborn daughter choice, which was to go to the graduate school that gives you full funding and a fellowship. And so I stayed in Columbus, Ohio, which allowed me to continue this relationship that I had just started. And that's what set me on the path that I'm still on now. If I had chosen to go to graduate school, say, in Tucson, and I lived in the desert, things would be very different now, I believe. Okay. Well, I think that we should explore that. I did actually make a trip to see um, the University of Arizona. So, and I, and then I had a full circle moment a few years ago where I went back 
and was poet in residence there all these years later after going a different path. So I actually have that sort of landscape in mind. It's easier for me to picture myself there. Okay. Let's do that. What year are we in? This would be, um, this would be the year 2000, which makes me want to sing that little high pitched thing that Conan O'Brien used to do on his show, but I won't. Wait, but you have to, cause I can't remember what that is. He used to have this thing called in the year 2000 and they had a little guy come on and he would go in the year 2000. Do you remember that? Yes, yes, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah. So that just happened. <laughs> Okay, so it's the year 2000. You're getting ready to make this decision. The option of Tucson is on the table. So is the option of staying home and being the dutiful daughter. And you look at your options and you go, do you know what? I like the desert. Yeah, I just go. You go. How does your family feel? (sighs) Probably proud of me. Leaving the nest wasn't something that was discouraged. But I think when it came down to the funding aspect of it, we, we all agreed that I should not take out additional student loans to study poetry for, for two or three years. That seemed to maybe like not the most practical choice, in which case um, staying in Ohio made more sense. But I think they would have missed me. I mean, I, um, I lived at home in my childhood bedroom, the year between college and graduate school, I took a gap year. And so I was like eating dinner at the, at the same dinner table and sleeping in the same twin size bed that I'd been sleeping in since I was six years old and having a lot of quality time with my parents. So I'm sure it would have been strange if I had left and could only afford to fly back for, you know, holidays I have Sunday dinner with my parents every Sunday. Like, Oh my goodness. And also my sisters and my brothers-in-law and my niece and my nephews, like all like 15 of us have dinner every Sunday at my parents' house that I, that they've lived at since I was six years old. So um, it would, it, it would be very different if any one of us weren't, weren't around. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to give you a little different. But and I think the other thing to point out at this juncture is obviously you meet your future husband at grad school. In well, I meet, I meet him in college. In co- yeah. All right. So you meet your future husband in college and you guys are already dating at that point. How does he feel when you say you're going to Tucson? Oh, probably sad, but we hadn't been dating for that long. So it was sort of inevitable that I was going to graduate school. I think when I had to make the decision about graduate school, we had been dating less than two months. Ah, Um, And when I started graduate school, we had only been dating for about six months. So it was um, incredibly new. So it would have been like, oh, that's sad, but not like, this was not like a five-year relationship that I would have had to have left behind to go be a poet in the desert. Okay, then. Well, then you've got a clear shot. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Actually, what I think is interesting is is the idea that, you know, it's the idea of you having made the choice of Ohio as this sort of dutiful daughter, but it sounds like that idea was really internal and that the reality was like, your family was fine that, you know, you didn't necessarily need to like, it was okay. <laughs> oh yeah. No, 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 no. My, my home bodiness, I, I claim it as my own. Like that is an absolute, that's a, that's a me thing. Okay. Well, let's get you to Tucson. So you have a, uh, presumably your last summer at home and then you pack up and you get ready to go. 
and you go. Are you in, where are you staying? Are you in dorms the first year? I'm guessing I'd probably be in like a little apartment. It would have been my first apartment ever because my first apartment in graduate school was my first apartment ever. I lived in a dorm all four years of of college. And then I lived with my parents the year after. My grad school apartment was my first time living and like paying rent and utilities and all of that. I would have been living alone because I didn't know anyone. obviously in Tucson. So that would have been very different because I had never lived by myself before, let alone in a strange place. Would that have been financially possible for you to live alone? I don't know. I mean, I don't likely no, depending, I mean, which is also probably part of why I didn't go. I don't know. How do people do this on like a grad student stipend? I feel like you probably like like the school, the school does things like they put you in touch with other people who are looking for apartments or like there's somebody else in your department who there's a notice board somewhere. Yeah. So then you email some total stranger coming from some other part of the country and they're like, do you want to share an apartment? Even though I have no idea what your habits are. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. Let's do that. Um, So it ends up up being like college. Yeah. Basically like college all over again, where you end up in in a room with someone who has a completely different lifestyle from you. Um, So yeah, maybe I would have had a roommate. Maybe I would have been in some sort of student housing. Probably there would have been a lot of ramen involved. (laughs) (laughs) There was still a lot of ramen involved here in Ohio. Should we try to picture just a little bit, just so we have a sense of kind of what your day in and day out is like, who this person is, just so we, can can you picture them at all? Who are you living with? That's a big part of your grad school life. (sighs) So probably another poet in their early 20s from some other part of the country, maybe a Midwesterner, maybe an East Coaster, or maybe they went to college away from home. And so they'd be more worldly than me and knew how to pay bills and set up a checking account. (laughs) And I could ask them how to do things. That would be really helpful. That would be helpful. Should we give you that? I feel like we should give you that. Can we, can I have someone who knows how to pay bills and who isn't so shy that they can order like a pizza? Because at that point in my life, I was so shy. It was hard for me to even call and order a pizza. So I really, I needed a roommate who could, um, who could adult more than I was able to adult. Okay. Well, I like that. There you go. We're we're gifting you that. There you go. Okay. You've got, (laughs) you've got a slightly more worldly roommate. And you're studying poetry. Is it roughly the same course as it would have been in Ohio or is there any difference? Yeah, same thing. Yeah, I think it would have been about the same. I mean, my my first year of grad school in Ohio, I was on fellowship, so I wasn't teaching at all. So I was just sort of writing all the time in coffee shops and I had a ton of free time. In this program, I would have been teaching, I think, pretty much right away. So my first, you know, my first fall there in the, in the desert heat would have been taking probably a poetry workshop, maybe a lit class, and then probably teaching. Um, undergraduates and um, being as terrified to do that as I was when I finally got around to it <laughs> in my in my real lived life. Was it terrifying the first? Oh class? my gosh! I I remember standing in the front of the room of my first comp class at Ohio State in the fall of I think it was it was two thousand one because I had a year of not having to do that. 
And I got up in front of the class and I stood there for a minute and the bell hadn't rung yet. And I realized I was like profusely sweating, which I don't do. Like I'm a freezing human being. I carry a cardigan with me in the summertime for air conditioning. Like I am not a hot person. And I realized I was like, I mean, it was like, like an SNL sketch where they put like little, um, like hoses in your hair and then like squirt it out. Like to, it was like that. And so I had to excuse myself and like walk down the hall to the bathroom in this journalism building and like splash water on my face because I was so um, like, I was like having a sort of anxiety attack, I think about having to be the person at the front of the room, um, like introverts teaching is like a a circle of hell that Dante didn't actually write about, but it's real. Okay. So it's autumn in Tucson. You've got your classes sorted. You've you've got to do the same teaching and we're going to assume that it has roughly the same feel. You say you were really shy. What, how about social life? What are you doing when you're not poeting to steal a, to verb? Mm, I love that you're verbing. I did. I've learned so much from you. You know, I, I am absolutely fine. And I'm, I'm a gregarious introvert. So like in small groups, I am totally great. Like if I got invited to a party of grad students at some apartment or everybody wanted to go out to a bar or a restaurant or something, I would so be there. Um, like karaoke. No, I don't want to be on stage, but like most, most things I'm game for, but I also don't, I don't tend to put myself out there. And probably at that age, I would not have been seeking a lot of social time. So I probably would have been hiding in my bedroom in the shared apartment, listening to music on my like ancient click wheel iPod that was about the size and weight of a toaster and like reading books and yeah, working on poems and, and like calling my mom very homesick very often. All right. And then the obvious difference, aside from the fact that you're in the desert is um, obviously when you were in Ohio, the boyfriend was still around. Um, So he's not around. And if you guys completely cut things off, like, did you just say goodbye when you went to Tucson? Yeah, I would have just said goodbye. I mean, Sort of weird, weirdly, ironically, about uh, like several months before I started dating that person, I had been in a multi-year relationship with someone else and we broke up because he was going to graduate school. <laughs> so I was only single like at the end of my college experience because um, after graduation, my then boyfriend went out of state to graduate school. And so I started dating one of my college friends um, uh-huh. after after that breakup happened. So we would have just said goodbye and I probably would have been sad about it and probably would have pined weirdly over it, even though it had only been a few months, precisely because I was living away from my people in a strange place. And I would have, in my mind, an imagination clung to the idea that that was a thing when really after a few months, it was not much of a thing. Mm. The other distinct possibility here is that I would have reached out to my previous <gasps> boyfriend who was also out of state at graduate school and tried to sort of like rekindle that from across the country. I don't think that would have worked 
But I can see either of those things happening. <laughs> I think we should decide. Let's figure it out. Where is he? Where's the other guy? Uh, he was in Chicago. Okay. So let's think. You're you're in Tucson. You're doing your thing. You're reading a lot in your room by yourself. Your roommate is nice, but mainly they're there to help you pay bills and order pizzas. <laughs> that poor roommate. <laughs> let's not downplay the importance of that. Super important. Yeah, poor roommate. Who knows? Um, um, do you do you call Chicago guy? I probably would. I mean, like if I'm thinking back to the person I was when I was 22, 23, and like the the probably as homesick as I felt, and I had lived in the same place at that point for 22, 23 years. I think it's reasonable to expect that like the lifeline of someone who knew you really well would be really seductive from the desert with a lot of like sudden adult responsibilities, you know? I mean, that's the, the perk of home is that you have your people. Like it's not so much about the place. It's not like I'm really dying to see the, the Ohio landscape every day. Like I like it, but I'm not here. I'm not here for that. And I'm certainly not here for the politics. Like I'm here because my people are here. And so if transplanted to a place where my people aren't, I know myself well enough to know that I'm going to start sending out my tentacles to try to keep as many of my people close to me, whether physically or, or sort of emotionally as possible. I recognize the tentacle feeling and it's what you do. And actually when my when it became very evident that my marriage was in crisis, the first thing that I did was I emailed my three best friends in the States and just said, I don't really know what's happening, but you just need to know that something is happening. And you just, I just need you to know, you don't have to do anything. I just need you to know. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what you do. The tent, the tentacle is a great image. Um, okay. So, so you reach out to Chicago guy. How does that go? What happens there? I think it probably wouldn't, have gone anywhere. My my guess is we would have corresponded. But, you know, relationships that begin in high school and carry on sort of off and on into college usually aren't the thing. No. I'm a little jealous of people when I see on Instagram, like someone post a picture of themselves with their husband, their current husband. And it's a picture of them from 1990. Someone just did this the other day. So this is kind of like a subtweet, but like a, <laughs> a very sweet, like longing subtweet, not like a criticism. A, a, a writer I follow uh, posted a picture of herself and her husband in like 1993. And they're wearing like band t-shirts and like have long hair and look like what I look like in 1993 with my, you know, boyfriend at the time or whatever. And I was so a happy for them and b sort of grieving for myself, the like loss of institutional knowledge that you have with another person who has known you like through so many iterations of self. Mm. You know, like I, really value my closest with my family. And I really value my closest with my friends, but your relationship with your partner is different and they know parts of you and pieces of you. And you have different private jokes and little comedy bits that you would do or little voices or little sayings, like all of those little things that kind of just poof, vamoose 
when there isn't an us anymore, because you need the other person to riff off of with all of those bits of information and all that data. Like, I don't know where it goes. And I, I think that, I mean, that's part of the tentacles, right? Is like reaching out for institutional knowledge about yourself. Like, who am I out here in the desert among strangers? The only way I know really who I am is in reference to all of these other people and all of these data points pinging off of me and them, me and them constantly, like that kind of relationship. And so if I'm out here and there's no ping, how am I, What? who am I alone, really, like truly in the desert? Like, could there be a more metaphorically alone place to be? It's interesting that that's where you've landed. I love it. <laughs> well, let's 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 think it through. I think a little bit because it sounds like Chicago guy was a was a reach, and and we understand why. But he's not going to be the he's not going to be like a constant ping. He might be yeah. the occasional ping. Well, but okay, so we're going to figure out a little bit more of who you are alone in the desert. I think so. Um, how's your writing? Oh, it's probably very depressing. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I struggled a lot my first year of graduate school, even in Columbus. Lack of structure was not great for me. You know, being on fellowship was like really great in theory, but not so great in practice because I had all this time in which I was supposed to be writing. But if the ideas weren't coming, I felt really guilty and pressured about that. Maybe having the teaching out there would have helped structure my time a little bit more and I would have gotten more writing done because I would have felt the pressure of time. That tends to be how I work. The busier I am, the more the ideas seem to come. It's it's not fair, but that's the way that it is if I have a lot of free time. It's crickets. So I probably would have been writing a fair amount and I'm imagining they would have been... Um, a mix between sad, lonely poems and also poems about Ohio. <laughs> and also probably um, because I, you know, whenever I go to a place that doesn't look like Ohio, I'm like, this doesn't look like Ohio. And so this is like my, um, this is my constant and every place else is a variable. And I'm always kind of measuring against the constant. And so I think I probably would have been writing some longing Midwestern poems and maybe like childhood nostalgia poems, which actually I did hear because my first book, which was my MFA thesis, has a ton about my childhood and a ton about Ohio. So maybe I was going to do that no matter where oh. I was. And maybe I would have written a bunch of desert poems because I tend to be inspired by the landscape around me. Okay. So I'm sure there would have been some mesquite branches in those poems there would have been some some you know night blooming cacti in those poems like probably every poet who goes to the desert for graduate school has to sort of exercise from them the desert landscape poems before they get down to the real deal do you think you would have been would you have been sort of going out into the desert like would you be sort of seeking it or would it just be sort of the immediate desert around campus and stuff like that like are do you are you going camping in the desert are you no. hiking in the desert no <laughs> no i am um i am the indoor type i am not the outdoor type like my idea of like like i just spent a weekend in the woods and by a weekend in the woods i mean in a cottage 
with like a tub with jets and a gas fireplace you turn on with a switch um, and a coffee maker. I'm also afraid of heights. So I'm not going to be like climbing up on some rock formation out someplace. No, no. Like, please let me be on the ground (laughs) with wide open spaces and plenty of things to hold on to. So no, I would not have been doing a lot of like extreme nature seeking. Um, Yeah. From my window would have been just fine. I can sort of, you can sort of sense the desert from your window. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's out there. It's out there. <laughs> your roommate, on the other hand, is probably like trekking out there because uh, they're super like functional and practical, and they've got like the kit and the camel pack that you know. Oh the yeah, thing. the there North Face, the North Face fleece, and the little yeah, all the stuff. Like it's just insufferable. The smart wool socks. I know. I, I, who is this person? Yeah. I don't. I don't know. They don't. Yeah. Well, they evidently don't exist in real life. <laughs> I'm like, call um, me a pizza before you go hiking, please, because I'm too shy. <laughs> um. Okay. All right. So we've got you, I think we've got you through your first year of grad school and you've written some longing Ohio poems, some nostalgia poems and some desert poems. You're spending a decent amount of time in your room, sometimes with a pizza. Um, And where shall we go? What happens next? Oh, I definitely would have been dating someone. Okay. Yay. Who is it? I, oh, who, who even knows? Yeah, I, I knowing myself, because I, you know, that's something and I, I write about this in the memoir. It's like, I really was never single. Um, you know, it's as soon as one relationship would end, I was ethical enough to not have overlap. I would like listeners to know that. No um, overlap. I wasn't doing like the, you know, setting up a backup plan before one relationship ever ended. I was not that needy. But really, as soon as a relationship would end, I would end up in another one right away. And, and so knowing me and knowing how lonely and unmoored I would have felt out there and knowing that I had just gotten out of one relationship, which, and then before that, another relationship, I have a very strong sense of 23 to 24 year old me probably would have found somebody else in the program, probably someone with dark hair Probably someone who liked poems and stories and indie rock. Maybe he was like in a class of mine and I noticed he was wearing like a pavement t-shirt or something. And I was like, oh yeah, that's my, there it is. That's the sign. (laughs) Or maybe I wouldn't have met anyone because the program was small enough that nobody was my kind of person. And I would have actually just gotten a sort of like forced single life. For graduate school. Let's decide. Okay, forced single life. I'm choosing forced single life because I think it wasn't actually great for me to have to have forced single life for the first time at 41. So I'm I'm gifting it to my 23, 24-year-old self. I think that's interesting. What do you think forced single life does for you? Well, it, it makes you think about why you haven't had one. And, you know, I think there are like two stories you can tell yourself about that. And the first story is very complimentary to self, (laughs) which is like, well, you're a catch. Of course, you're (laughs) never single. How could someone like you ever stay on the market long? As soon as you're available, surely someone's been watching from afar and can't wait to take you out to dinner. But that's not really it. 
I think the true story is the other story. And that is that you are probably, whether you want to admit it or not, deeply insecure and um, attached to others. And you probably feel more comfortable being part of a set of people rather than being by yourself. Because if you have a person, you have someone to do things with. You don't have to go places by yourself. You don't have to actually order the pizza because maybe your person will do that. You don't have to go out to dinner alone or maybe go to a movie alone or walk down the street alone. Which that in and of itself is really interesting, isn't it? I, I, the idea that that's bad, you know? Yeah. Whereas I think I think once you finally do it, you do it a few times, you're like, oh my God, I love going to the I love going to the movies by myself. It's like joy. Yes, or especially even eating think, a meal. Oh my God. Well, I think especially after you have kids, right? You're like, I'm I'm alone. I'm alone. I'm doing a thing by myself. It's just me and my brain and Yeah. But it feels, I think at least for me, at a certain time in my life, it felt like free fall. Mm. Um, it really did feel like free fall. You know, I look back on on like some of the decision making from my like teens and 20s in particular, and it's like really ultimately fearful or fear based decision making and also in some ways like scarcity based decision making. Like, well, if I don't do this, nothing good is ever going to happen again. If I don't pick this, then nothing good is ever going to happen again. And um, I guess the the joy of of being on one's own in, in like later in life, whether by choice or not, is the opportunity to be like, oh, wait, that was really faulty thinking. Like that kind of fear-based and scarcity-based decision-making was just, that's just poor wiring. Like I need to not do that now. Like not allow myself to fall into those patterns now especially when you're young, they're, they're so understandable, right? The, all yeah. of a sudden the world gets big, you know, and it's yes. sort of like this is, you know, it's a really understandable default. But maybe, um, I was thinking maybe in Tucson, your your functional roommate kind of gives you enough of a platform of like the basics to where it feels a bit like maybe you can do the rest of it on your own for a little bit. So we're, we're gifting you that. We're going to, you get to just learn what it's like to be alone for a little while. So, um Two years for grad school? Yeah, I think it is. It was three years here, but I think it was two years there. Okay. All right. So how about in your second year? Does your writing change at all? I think I probably would have had a a similar experience to what I actually had here, which is I didn't write a whole lot my first year. And I wrote a ton my second year because I finally got comfortable and so my, I imagine that my second year, I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And maybe my anxiety was a little bit lower. Or maybe it was ramping up again, because suddenly it's like, oh, it's a two-year program, and I'm in year two. Now what am I going to do? And I remember that anxiety of like, oh, gosh, I have to make another life decision. <laughs> this wasn't it. Like, <laughs> like, there isn't a track I'm just on, and I can continue to just be rolled along it. Like, I actually have to decide for myself what the next phase looks like. So probably part of year two would have been thinking ahead to what life post MFA looked like. And in particular location, was I going to go home or not? This is the question. What do you think? 
I think I would have gone home. I imagine I left Tucson. I got on a plane. I said goodbye to my roommate, thanked her for all of the pizza (laughs) assistance. Maybe I was able to call and order takeout on my own after two years. It seems like that's reasonable. If I can teach, I can order a pizza. And I got on a plane and I flew back to Columbus. And if I didn't have a job, I probably would have crashed with my parents again in the same twin bed that I slept in when I was six. Okay. And um, probably would have just started applying for jobs because that's kind of what I ended up doing in my actual life. Yeah. You've got a couple things different. So it's a year earlier because you haven't done a three-year program. You've got a two-year program and you're not with the boyfriend. And you've had a little time of just being on your own, which sounds like it's the longest stretch that you've had on your own, this sort of two-year period. Yeah. So maybe I wouldn't have. Like, maybe I would have left. Maybe in Tucson, my roommate and I would have been very good friends. And maybe she would have been going to get a PhD in some cool city I've never visited. And as much as I really didn't dig the idea of doing a PhD, maybe I would have been like, I'll come to... (laughs) Boston slash Chicago slash San Francisco slash wherever with you and find a job there. Like that sounds fun. Um, It does sound fun. Right? Yeah. Let's do that. That sounds like an adventure. Let's give me an adventure. I would love to give you an adventure. We can, we can live somewhere else. Yeah. And then you can, we'll drop you back in Ohio when we're, when we're done, I promise. Fair enough. Um, Okay. Where do you go? And do you do, do you do PhD route or do you go just to work somewhere? No PhD. No, I don't. I think probably the me in Tucson would have realized the same thing the me here realized, which is that I got, it's hard to write and do a lot of teaching at the same time. And I'm much more, as my high school English teacher said once, I'm not sure you're scholarly by nature. (laughs) And I, I laughed about that. Um, And it wasn't an insult, but it was like, I think it was a deeply true thing, which is like, even as a teacher now, because I am, I think of myself more as a practicing artist. Like I'm a teaching artist, right? Like I'm teaching not because I have like five years of experience in pedagogy. I'm teaching from like, I'm a practitioner. This is what I do. And this is what works for me. How can we translate? Mm. what I've learned as a practitioner into what I can share with you. Um, It's almost more sort of like, like apprentice or mentee mentor kind of teaching as opposed to the kind of teaching I would do as Dr. Smith, which I'm not. Um, So no, I don't, I don't think I would have done that. And you need to stick with your, um, your pizza order. So in that sense, the, the priority yeah. is so you just need to get to the city and then I'm a can... good wingman. Yeah, yeah. I just need to get to the city. And then right. I probably would have applied for jobs doing something writing adjacent, you know, well, like let's maybe figure out where you are and then we can figure out what that was. Oh gosh. You know, I don't know where would that person have gone? Maybe they're Chicago. Outdoorsy. Yeah. Maybe. Chicago. Oh, they're out. Oh, they're outdoorsy. That's All right. Okay. Cause they went to the desert. But you've got the lakes, like there's, there's outdoors. Yeah, I, let's Chicago. go to Chicago. Cause I, I think that would have been a realistic follow for me because it was taking me back to the Midwest, but not to home. So it felt like 
safe and comfortable and close distance to my family, I don't know that I would have chosen to be so far away from my family as that. So a cool city driving distance from my people would have been doable. Okay. Yeah. All right. You're in Chicago. What do you find to do for work in Chicago? Oh my gosh. What does one find? Maybe I would have worked for like a local newspaper or magazine or, or something. Cool. That would have been fun. I think. Yeah. Um, Like just even like editorial work. I love editorial work. I love the, like editorial work is like the, is to like journalism in, in a way like what a, what a dishwasher back of house person is to like the server. Like if given a restaurant job as an introvert, I always would have rather been in back of house, even getting paid a little less and not having to deal with the human beings. So from a a sort of publication perspective, I would always rather be either writing quietly by myself or doing like the editorial back end work than having to go out and like, interview people and get the story. That would not have been me. Okay. All right. So it's a little, what do we think? It's a little magazine? Yeah. Like a, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're doing editorial. Um, You guys have like a little apartment together, presumably. We do. It's great. My, um, my best friend from high school lives in Chicago, another draw still. So I hang out with her and go to, and we we see shows all the time. Another perk of living in Chicago is like tons of great bands come through constantly. You can go to a show like five nights a week, which I probably would have done. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to see bands all the time and then editing and writing poems on the side. Okay. That sounds amazing. Yeah, that's not a bad life. Life is good. <laughs> it sounds fabulous. I love it. Okay. What about men? Oh, yeah. I totally meet someone at a show. Yes. That's what happens. Like I meet somebody, like the, the guy in the pavement t-shirt, I meet at a show. It's not a pavement show because anyone I would date would not wear the t-shirt to the show. <laughs> like if you wear a pavement t-shirt to a super chunk show, that's cool. You wear a pavement t-shirt to a pavement show, it's a problem. I you don't understand. Do you can't Can you do expl- that. I don't get it. But like, why? You just I'm, do I'm not. I'm clearly like the least cool person on the planet and I have no idea. I I always thought that was like a very known thing. You do not wear the a band's t-shirt to see that band. You wear like something totally unrelated or like if you want to wear a concert t-shirt, it can be a band that's like adjacent, but you cannot go. You cannot go to a Nico Case show wearing your Nico Case t-shirt. It is like, as my daughter would say, and this was not a word back in the day, but it is a word now. It is a very try hard thing. That's like that too. Like Vi's like, don't be a try hard. A try hard would wear the t-shirt to the band. Actually a try hard, the worst try hard thing would be to go in a different t-shirt, buy a t-shirt at the merch table and then put it on at the show. You can't do it. You just got to like go buy your stuff, shove it in your tote bag and wear it to a different show by a different band another night. But it has to be a band in the same sort of general. No, it no. can be anything. Oh my God. I don't know how this works. It can be anything. It can this be anything. It just can't be the band you're seeing. Okay. My solution to this is to not go to gigs, which is fine because I'm 40 <laughs> and I feel like. <laughs> no, no, it's 
It's too soon. Okay, so you meet your guy and he's in a pavement shirt, but you're not at pavement. That's fine. And um, <laughs> is he and is he a poet? Because you don't meet him in your poetry. No, class. he's not, he's a, not poet. a poet. He's okay. not a writer. Oh, okay. No. No. And and yeah, I think that and in, in a lot of ways is is not a bad thing. Like it's it's not necessarily a bad thing to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't do what you do. You can have different interests. Um, I guess on, on the bright side, there's no competition, right? Like, Oh, you yeah. got a palm into the Paris review. Oh, well, I'm so happy for you. Let's have dinner to celebrate <laughs> your poem in the Paris review. Okay. That feels good. That feels refreshing. I mean, yeah. you talk about that a bit in the sort of early stages of your relationship with your husband obviously that's you know you had that in common you had writing yeah. in common and I think you... it's m- maybe helpful not to <laughs> yeah have different yeah. dreams and goals and that way if one of you reaches that dream or goal it is not you don't run the risk of it being something the other person wanted for themselves mm. you know I mean I because I understand that I think it is like and and we run into this with our friends too, right? Like your friend calls you and says, oh my gosh, I got a, a piece in this journal or I got this fellowship or I got this job or I got this whatever. And sometimes it's stuff that we actually did apply or submit to, right? Like, so they actually yeah. are getting something that we thought might be ours. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's something that we didn't even try for, but just the very nature that they got this thing can spur this like weird, ugly little voice in our heads that we have to constantly talk down, I think, as creative people, which is, and it comes from the scarcity mindset and it comes from the fear mindset, which is there's only so much to go around and someone else just got some of it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, and it can be a, like a real problem if most of your friends do what you do, which most of my friends or a lot of my friends, maybe not most, a lot of my friends do. And it's so important to like be able to cheer on others and not see everyone else's win as your <laughs> loss. Like that's such a diminished sort of impoverished way to look at what we're all doing together. And I don't know how we have genuine relationships, friendships or romantic relationships if we're approaching things in that way. Well, and it's so, it's so embedded, as you say, I mean, that sense that somebody else's win is your loss is, I mean, not to get too grand about, I mean, it's a sort of capitalist mindset, isn't it? Right. That's that's right. So I think that's the thing. Whereas at some point you do, if you get there, it's a really wonderful place to be. I, I, I touch it rarely, but you know, that sense actually is there's just loads and creativity. There's loads, but yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah, it is. It's tough. But so you don't have that with pavement guy because he doesn't do that. Yeah. So you guys, you guys are having a nice time dating. How's your poetry? Because he's really supportive. Yeah, he's really supportive and I'm continuing to write. And maybe I, you know, maybe around this time would be the time I would send out a book manuscript, maybe it would get picked up. I don't know. I mean, that, that did happen in actual life. So maybe, maybe it would happen in, in this sort of sidewinding life too. Let's decide. Is that what it feels like? You've been working on a bunch of poems. I think, yeah. So I get my first book published and I'm living in Chicago 
Um, probably if I'm with pavement guy for a year or two, probably upon lease renewal talks at some point, I would have moved in with pavement guy. And I think the roommate would have probably been okay with that because maybe at this point, she's also dating someone she met in her PhD program. And we just decide that's the natural next step. So I have a book out and I'm living with my boyfriend who does some other kind of work. I have no idea what he does. Maybe he works at like a greenhouse or something. That's really appealing to me. I'm not going to lie. Like, so he's like nurturing, which you can tell because he's really good with plants and I don't have a green thumb at all. I can't keep anything alive. But in our apartment in Chicago, we have all of these house plants that you know, I can't keep in my house here in Ohio because I can't keep things alive, even cactus. Um, so yes, but we have this like completely sort of like, it looks like a jungle in our house, which is great for my writing. And we have to keep it really warm and humid for the plants, which is great for me because I'm always cold. And there's tons of natural light, which we need for the plants. And also I need as a human. And I have space to do my work and he has space to do his work. And every month I'll take a weekend and drive home and see my family in Ohio. And the balance seems really good because I don't have to go too long, but also we're not just popping in on each other all the time. You know, it's, it seems like a really good life. I don't know why I didn't do that. That was very nice. (laughs) Is this the part of the show where I start feeling like sad? (laughs) No, this is thinking the part about the- this person who has all these house plants and this really great, this really great supportive partner. Is this the, is this the therapy part of this, this show? Is, this is this is the bit where we move you through the feeling of having done this, and then we can kind of decide what, um, what of that life you kind of want to incorporate into, okay, into your actual life in in Ohio. Perfect. Um, but yes, okay. So how's the, and the relationship is. The relationship seems good. I think it's good. You guys yeah. get engaged? I think we get engaged. Yeah, I think we do. Like, not because it seems like it has to happen, but it just seems like the like the natural next thing. Yeah. Um, like, I've always wanted kids. And I'm, like, just Midwestern and conventional enough that I don't... I think I would, you know, live with someone, but I think I probably would have needed to get married, to feel like I could take that step. Um, That's just, you know, it's hard to shed a lot of your upbringing. So yeah, I think we probably would have gotten married. We probably would have stayed in Chicago. Okay. And probably not long after that, we probably would have started having kids because that's something I always have known that I wanted to do. Okay. That makes sense. So you're sort of late 20s now sort of yeah 30, like yeah maybe there. like 30 okay I just want to check quickly on on the writing and because that year I think your first book came out a couple of years ago now so yeah what's so happening I'm, with your writing? I'm, I guess maybe I'm sending out my second book okay to like contests and hoping for the best and if it's anything like my actual life, it's sort of like an always the bridesmaid um, experience where I had to send that book out for like four years. And so 
Um, wow. Yeah. That's impressive. First... That's always, it's always so good to hear. Mm-hmm. I know it's awful in the moment, but mm-hmm. it is really. The first book got taken right away, which was a blessing and a curse because it gave me, I think, an unrealistic expectation for how, how quickly it could happen to get a book of poems taken, you know, just cold like that, unagented. Um, and then I sent the second book out for four years before it won a prize and, and was published. And so I think at this point, I'm like mid slog with the second book, but I have okay. faith in it. And I'm also continuing to work on other poems that aren't in that book. Like the third thing is starting to happen while I'm circulating the second thing. Um, and I'm still working and I'm juggling all of the stuff. Okay. And then shall we say that you get pregnant? And then I get pregnant. Okay. And I'm still writing and I'm still working and I'm still sending out the second book. Listeners, Maggie looks tired. <laughs> you said it. You just, your, your face just went, I've got too much on. I've got too much to do now. It's I'm tired. There's so much. And then I have a baby and I have a newborn and I'm still sending out the second book and I'm on maternity leave, but I know I have to go back because we're not going to be able to probably live on greenhouse salary in Chicago. Um, and I'm not writing as many poems probably because I, I mean, I actually wrote zero poems for the first year after my daughter was born in my real life. So I'm going to cut my, I'm going to cut fake me some slack and say, maybe it's not zero, but it's probably few. Okay. Um, yeah, things kind of slow down and my energy has to kind of shift over to caretaking more than, than writing. Um, but soon after that, my second book gets picked up, which gives me a little infusion of faith in my work and reminds me that I'm not supposed to like give up on that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to let myself have that. I'm not really able to do a whole lot of like book toury stuff because I have like a one-year-old by that point. I remember feeling with my first three books really like that. I just was never able to do enough on their behalf and like seeing other people who either, you know, like single men or single women or, um, you know, married writers who didn't have children or married writers who had grown children, like, People in just different configurations seem to be able to do more um, Mm. than I was able to do. And also just living in the Midwest, not being like automatically linked in to like necessarily like a huge, vibrant, it's not like I was in New York. Yeah. um, Where things just like are just like you step outside and you like bump into a writer doesn't necessarily happen here, although there are a lot of us. So yeah, I think probably I would have stalled out for a while on my writing while having small kids. And do you think, as in your real life, do you think the second one follows the first relatively soon after the second child? Probably. I mean, I, I had a, I had trouble having my second. I had a couple of miscarriages between baby one and baby two, um, yeah. Oh, I mean, it's so common. It's it's like, I feel like I, I feel kind of obligated to acknowledge it now because 
when it happened to me, no one was talking about it. And then after I started talking about it, like people just came out of the woodwork. It's sort of like talking about your divorce. And it's like, oh yeah, me too, me too, me too. Yeah. And I find it like the, it's so incredibly common. Um, and even multiples, it's so incredibly common that, um, hearing other people talk about it gave me hope when I thought, oh my gosh, I've just had two, like, I'm probably never going to be able to have another kid. And knowing friends of mine who had four or five and then had one or two or three healthy kids after that gave me so much perspective and hope that, um, like, I actually like to mention it now, just like an FYI, hey, like, it's not necessarily the end, right? Like, if yeah. that happens, it's not, it. it's devastating, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to happen again. So, yeah, I probably would have tried to have them fairly close in age because I grew up in a stair-step family where I'm two, I'm the oldest of three and we're all two years apart. And so there's a kind of, like, closeness where your siblings are your siblings and not sort of like pseudo aunts or um, pseudo parents because there's not that much of a gap between the oldest and the youngest. Mm. And I, I think in my mind, I always kind of wanted to recreate for my children the kind of, I mean, frankly, the kind of growing up I had um, in ways that were like, <laughs> you know, possible and not possible, especially now. Okay. All right. Let's just take a sort of summary picture of where we are. So you've got your apartment still full of plans with Pavement Man. You've got two kids. Maybe you don't have an apartment anymore. Maybe you guys have, have upsized at some point. Yeah. We're, we've, we've gone to the suburbs, I think at this point, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And okay. So you're in the suburbs of Chicago, you're parenting, you're teaching, your um is the right is the writing feel like it's going to come back yeah I think once the kids go to school yeah it comes back okay you know that's I mean that's been my that's been my experience like once you can get enough time like a few hours at a stretch even if it's just part-time you know preschool or whatever a few hours at a stretch goes a long way um, so that you can kind of stare into the middle distance to get some things done in your brain. <laughs> Agreed. And I want to, I just want to ask a question, which kind of takes us back to sort of the original thing that we were talking about in terms of, you know, sort of, if you had never met your husband, you would never have your kids, et cetera. What are these kids like? Are they your kids? Are they? No, I don't think they're my kids. Like I, yeah. I really can't imagine having my particular kids in any other iteration like, I mean, goodness, if I could choose, I absolutely would. Like I would, I would pack them into my pocket and take them in every reincarnation I ever get forever. I want them to be with me. Like if I have to come back as a cat, I want them to be my kittens, but I don't think that's the way that it works. So no, I think, I think this, this husband in this life, and I think these children in this life and, and the, the dog I might have in this life, um, aren't the things that I have now aren't the people and the creatures that I have now and I don't know what they're like because they're mine um they're probably really um sarcastic and they love music and um are really verbal (laughs) (laughs) and maybe they have a green thumb from their dad that's nice I like that that's very sweet Okay. So the plants continue. Is there anything else you feel is unfinished before we wrap up? Is there anything else you'd like to sort of 
make sure we address. No, honestly, that that seems like a pretty beautiful life, I have to say. Like it feels full and it feels like it's got lots of good stuff, but also isn't like fully, completely idealized. Like it's not perfect. There are still some splinters to be sanded in that life, which is what all lives have, right? So no, that's that's good. I mean, I kind of wish I could sidle on over into it. <laughs> if, like just part-time, like PT. If I could just do do that, like on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule, and then be here the rest of the week, I think that would be lovely. That's interesting. Let's <laughs> let's figure let's go away and figure out how we do that. I'm super up for that. I mean, I don't know how I don't know how time works or <laughs> or how you know the universe works. There are probably all kinds of all kinds of theories. I just you know, that, that tell you that everything's happening all at the same time anyway. So yeah. maybe if I could just sort of like push through some sort of membrane in my life that is not quite visible, I can, I can get in there for a while. Well, or what I tend to think with these unlived lives is that, is that they, once you kind of access them, I think it's possible that they push through the membrane back into your life. So I feel like it'll be really interesting to see if anything shows up. On that note, is there anything in this moment that you would like to pull over from your unlived life into your current life? Oh my gosh. If I could have all those plants, I would. Like you can see me right now. So you can see that the only the only thing that is plant-like in the background are dried flowers, like literally <laughs> dried flowers that I have to dust because, uh, and there's no water in that vase because they're dried flowers. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I I actually love the idea of having a house full of full of plants. Um, okay. Well, if you if you if you test it out and if you try again with the plants, see what happens. Will you let me know? I will. I will. Okay. Great. Amazing. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Maggie. This was a joy. Thank you. As a self-described homebody. I think Maggie did a pretty amazing job of venturing away from the nest in her unlived life. Nothing too crazy, just a little jaunt in some not-too-far-away cities. She joked that she might like to visit her unlived life in Chicago a few days a week, but really, as opposed to creating some new existence to which she should aspire, I think Maggie painted a portrait of her life in the aftermath of the divorce. The years immediately following a breakup like that can feel unbearably lonely. And I loved watching how, even during her years in the desert, which, as she pointed out, is the most perfect metaphor for a life that feels harsh and isolated, she began to sow the seeds of the next phase of her life, sending out, as she called them, her tentacles to Chicago, the city where she'd ultimately land, though she didn't know it yet. There was something so hopeful about it, so much of a sense that if she could feel something akin to home, she'd get there eventually. And she did get there moving into a life that looked not like her old life, but also something not too far off, something arguably a little less fearful and, crucially, with that house full of plants, something really vibrant and alive. The journey from arid desert to flourishing greenhouse definitely feels like it mirrors the path out of pain and towards the light in Maggie's lived life. The jury's probably out on whether those plants will survive her less-than-green thumb, but it feels safe to say that that sense of hopefulness and optimism isn't going anywhere. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. 
Thank you so much for listening.